day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Although Governor Gretchen Whitmer has ordered non-essential businesses to close through the pandemic, that hasn't stopped people from flocking to gun shops to stock up on firearms and ammunition. The Trace, a nonprofit news publication that covers gun issues, recently looked at the five states that have banned gun shops from operating with their stay-at-home orders. They include Michigan, New York, New Mexico, Massachusetts, and Washington State. In all of those states, the report says guns have continued to fly off the shelves despite the orders to close. Here to talk about more of that is one of the reporters who worked on that piece. Champ Barton is a reporter who covers community violence and the gun industry for The Trace. Champ, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what did you find when you started looking into what was happening at gun shops here in Michigan? Uh, Yeah, so uh, this started because um, the FBI publishes uh, background check numbers uh, every month which is basically uh, just a tally of the number of uh, background checks that were processed for gun sales uh, in every state. And Michigan's numbers um, just looked higher than we expected, given that the stores were supposed to be closed. Um, there, was, there, there was basically a 112% increase uh, in uh, NICS checks process in Michigan uh, over the same time last year, so compared to April of 2019. Um, and there was it was a drop off from the previous month, which which was one of the biggest months, which I think was the biggest month on record um, for for next checks in the country. Um, but still, you know, thousands of background checks have been processed for gun sales uh, in the state, despite the order to close. Mm. Uh, so you actually visited a number of gun shops here in Michigan. Tell us what you saw and what you heard from the owners and the operators of those shops about why they were even open? Yeah, so I didn't actually visit them in person. All this was done over the phone. Right. Um, but I, I did call uh, 20 stores in Michigan, um, and 15 out of 20 uh, were open. Now, uh, you know, it's I, I didn't have long, wide-ranging interviews with every single one of them, um, but with the ones that I did speak to or who were willing to sort of open up and talk to me about why they had stayed open, um, it came down to a number of, of uh, different things. Mostly, there is this combination of um, the a concern about an infringement on the constitutional right to bear arms, um, and sort of uh, feeling bolstered by this federal guidance that was released um, by the Trump administration and the Department of Homeland Security that basically said gun stores in the gun industry uh, is considered an essential business, um, and so that that guidance was being used by many states uh, in March to uh, inform their own executive orders, saying like they would refer to this guidance and say, you know, all the things that are listed as essential in this guidance are essential in our state. Um, And so that's why a bunch of states that had ordered gun gun shops to close in March sort of reversed course uh, by the end of March when this order changed, when this guidance changed. um, And a lot of gun stores to stay open. Michigan was not one of them. And And the state's uh, executive orders supersede that federal guidance anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was 15 out of 20 stores, uh, that were open and, and most of them, uh, that I spoke with were just, uh, they felt bolstered by that guidance. They felt like people needed to be able to have access to home defense, uh, in a, in a time that is sort of 
um, as perilous and uncertain as this one. Uh, and so they just thought it was that they were essential and that they should be deemed essential, and so they stayed open. You know, I think when you think about uh, gun store operators, when you think about people flocking to stores to buy guns, I, there there is this kind of uh, apocalyptic sensibility, I guess, that that accompanies that. In other words, th- things are going to go wrong. Society is melting down. I've got to have a gun. When you talked with these owners and operators, did you get a sense that that was what they were feeling or that was what they felt they were catering to during during this time, this idea of, of the, the dire need for protection because things are not going to, to, to be the way that they normally are? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. It seems like what the reporting has shown is that um, what you're talking about is an element of it and that people are going to the stores um, and buying guns because they're afraid of of this uncertainty that we're all feeling about what's going to happen with this coronavirus um, and, and how we're all going to be able to manage throughout this pandemic as it stretches on and on. Um, and so I think, though, that the gun store owners... Um, at least the ones that I spoke to in Michigan were not, they didn't sound panicked. They weren't, you know, terrified of the possibilities, but, you know, as a gun shop owner, um, many of these people just feel like, uh, that, that need for home defense is a real one, um, at any given time. And so, especially in a time like this, when things are uncertain and when people, you know, there is this sort of general, if not, uh, uh, you know, sort of subdued fear of, of looting or rioting or whatever might happen if, if this stretches on too long and people don't have jobs and whatever the case might be. Um, and so they recognize, at least the gun shop owners that I spoke to in Michigan recognize that uh, there is this fear that's out there, this fear that you're sort of alluding to, um, and they serve an important or essential function in providing a means for these, for people to sort of uh, quell that fear as best that they can um, by by feeling more protected with a with a firearm. Do we get any any data that tells us the types of firearms that people have been stocking up on here in Michigan? Are they handguns, for instance? Are they rifles or other kinds of of weapons? Do we do we have any idea of what what that looks like? Yeah, we do have some idea. Um, so the next numbers are broken down. Uh, by handgun sales, long gun sales, multiple gun sales, um, and then there's you know a bunch of other checks that we've sort of filtered out of our um, analysis so that we were just getting gun sales. Um, and it does seem like the majority is handguns. Um, the numbers that I have in front of me, it was around over it was over twenty three thousand um, checks for handguns and about uh, thirteen thousand checks for long guns, um, which can include rifles, shotguns, stuff like that. Um, and so those don't correspond one-to-one with, with gun sales, these numbers, because if you buy uh, three guns, you'll only process one check. Um, but that said, it does seem like handguns are the, most, are the ones that are selling the most. And that, make, that makes sense, given what we know about home defense, which that handguns are, are typically the gun that someone would choose for home defense, with, you know, a handgun or a shotgun, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 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 mostly across the country handguns that are selling and handgun ammunition that are selling. 
Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. I'm talking with Champ Barton, a reporter who covers community violence and the gun industry for The Trace, which is an independent nonprofit news organization dedicated to expanding coverage of guns in the United States. We're talking about the stay-at-home orders here in Michigan, which included orders for non-essential businesses to close. And uh, I think uh, the governor, when she issued that uh, order, believed that gun shops would fall into that non-essential category and would have to shut their doors. Uh, the Trace has discovered that a lot of those gun shops did not and that uh, guns were still flying off the shelves in gun stores here in Michigan while those stay-at-home orders were in place. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what's your reaction to the idea that gun stores defied that uh, order to close as non-essential businesses. Do you think people should have been able to buy firearms during the pandemic? Tell us why. Tell us why not. We especially want to hear from you if you're a gun owner or if you're somebody who went out and purchased a gun in the last couple of months as we were supposed to be staying at home and these businesses were supposed to be closed. Give us an idea of why you bought a gun or why you felt the need to buy a gun. Uh, Give us an idea of what you think of the state trying to restrict that right to buy a gun. As always here, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to listeners, Champ, uh, I'm curious if you can put Michigan in some context. As I said in the open, there are five states that that issued orders that would have closed gun shops as non-essential businesses. How different are we from the others? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Michigan saw the greatest year-over-year increase, meaning that the difference between the number of uh, FBI background checks processed in April of 2019 uh, and the ones that were processed in April of 2020 uh, was biggest in Michigan. Um, but there are some sort of caveats there. Uh, Michigan and and one other state, New York, um, confirmed to me that both uh, that they, they permitted basically uh, gun shops that were located inside of essential businesses to continue to operate. Uh, so, for example, many Walmarts sell guns um, and Walmarts would be permitted under these executive orders to continue selling guns because they were allowed to stay open since they provide other essential functions. Um, and so that might have uh, accounted for some of the increase. And then also in Michigan, and this is only in Michigan, um, an ATF ruling in March basically made it so that more checks would be processed in the state. Um, the ruling said that, that firearms dealers cannot accept a Michigan-issued concealed uh, permit uh, in lieu of conducting a background check. So basically, it used to be the case that someone with a concealed permit um, could go and buy a gun and a background check would not be processed, uh, an FBI background check would not be processed. Um, and so now all those people who would otherwise have been, uh, you know, not getting a next check when they go to buy a gun now have to get a next check done when they buy a gun. And so that can sort of inflate the numbers when we're comparing year over year, since this was not the case last year. Um, in terms of the store, in terms of the number of stores that were open that I called, uh, it was roughly on par with the other states. Um, Michigan, uh, Washington, and New Mexico all saw sort of a majority of the the gun stores that I called uh, were open. In New York, that was not the case. It was about four out of 10. 
uh, stores that I called and in Massachusetts, it was way lower. It was one out of 20 that I called uh, were open. Um, so it's, it is on the, if you're looking on a spectrum, you know, it's on the higher end, 15 out of 20 stores that I called in Michigan were open. Um, but that squares about right with, you know, in Washington, it was 10 out of 10. And in New Mexico, it was 9 out of 10. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and leave your comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to Hi, the show. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How I are you? I think that most people that would own a gun, they would own one anyway It's because they're always in fear. And then when they own a gun, they never know that the person didn't have a gun before they came in, but they can use their own gun on them. Hmm. Uh, so, so you think the uh, the idea of the stores being open or closed is kind of irrelevant that that people would have guns, regardless. Oh, oh no, no, and th- and this is why the store is always going to be open because guess what? A person that wants to own a gun, they're always going to own one anyway. Hmm. Yeah. And that. a person that is, uh, in other words, I don't own a gun. I don't need. I've got two hands. And I know what I need to know to cover myself. Hmm. They call it covering. I call it covering your own spot. Cover your spot <laughs> in the behalf of yourself. <laughs> and so, but anyway, so the person that would own a gun, they would own one anyway. But the person that comes in to break in, they didn't come in with a gun, but they'll use their own gun to hurt them. Yeah, uh, Lola, I I really appreciate the call uh, and the perspective that that question of. Legal gun sales versus illegal trafficking, I think, kind of lurks in the background uh, of, of this discussion. Uh, Champ Barton, I wonder if you've given thought to that. In other words, that if if gun stores had been closed and you still had this incredible urge among people to protect themselves during the pandemic, maybe illegal sales would have been uh, more, more prevalent. And I, I don't think anybody would think that was a preferable outcome. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I, I don't actually know um, the answer to that because we don't track um, illegal right. handguns. There's not a way to do that. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and also, even in this case where most of these gun stores did stay closed, you would have places like Walmart or gun stores that were located in hardware stores that were still open and that people could go and, and purchase the guns um, mm-hmm. at. So it, it's hard to tell, you know, whether or not that would actually have been a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Lola, thanks for the call. Let's go to Tim downriver. Tim, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Go ahead, Tim. Hey, I, uh, I don't own a gun. I've never owned a gun. But I feel the gun shops are essential. I, I did consider actually buying one. I did not. But if you can go into a Walmart and purchase one, mm-hmm. an independent gun shop to me with with social distancing, it would be, I think it, it wouldn't be a problem to go buy a gun, and I I would consider it essential. Yeah. So so Tim, the reason that Walmart was open though was because it sold essential goods. It ha- it also happens to sell weapons, and you could have gone in and bought one during the pandemic. But I think the distinction that the order was trying to target was people who are selling food and things that people absolutely absolutely need all of the time versus things like guns which uh which is the only thing you can buy at a, at a gun shop do you not buy that distinction tim i understand the distinction but 
I was, I, I was, I'm mean, going to go home. I see marijuana provision centers lined up around the block. Gun, mm. gun stores aren't very big. Mm. They could close the doors like other businesses and say only one person in at a time. And you could line up that way. I, I don't, if, if people want to go buy a weapon anyways at Walmart, which mm-hmm. they were allowed to, then mm-hmm. let's use our common sense. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the someone that doesn't own a gun, but I did consider buying one. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I really appreciate the call and, and the perspective. Uh, Champ Barton, I, I actually hear this complaint from a number of different kinds of businesses. Uh, clothing sellers, for instance, were upset that they were asked to close. And Walmart and Meyer, which is another store here that, that sells clothes along with other things, w- they were allowed to stay open, which was an unfair advantage. Did you hear that? much from the gun store owners that 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 was one of their concerns yeah so the few folks um that i talked to in michigan didn't mention this but in other states uh conversations i had there was a lot of people who were just worried about um their ability to sort of you know survive they were dependent upon their store for for income i had one uh, gun shop owner in new mexico who had just opened his store before the pandemic sort of hit the u.s and he uh, and he had two daughters at home, and he had no other source of income. He had just sort of poured his money into the store, um, and he was staying open. He had been cited by the New Mexico State Police several times, um, and he was staying open despite those citations because he was like, "I need this money, and and I have important uh, goods that you know." He, was, he operated a pawn shop, and he just thought that it was important that he stay open, um, but he needed the income. And I think that's a problem uh, that a lot of these smaller stores are facing is that they, you know, it's it's hard if you're a small store um, to close your doors for a long period of time. Um, and so I know a lot of states, and I, I don't think Michigan's one of them yet, but um, a lot of states have started to allow uh, online sales. So you could do like a curbside pickup because um, you do have to go into the store to do the background check. Um, and so uh, that's happened in some states to sort of ease that burden on, on smaller stores. Mm. Uh, again, Tim, uh, thanks very much for the call and for sharing that perspective. Let's go to Jackie in Hazel Park. Jackie, welcome to the show. Hey. Hi. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pro-gun, and I'm also into active nonviolence. So I like guns for sports. I'm not going to take them from anybody, but I think there's a much better way to resolve conflict between people. Mm. I think we need to start talking about that like a lot more and as far as guns for sale guns not for sale the question is moot because now since 3d printers people can make their own guns Mm. in their basement Mm. so so do we want to be a society though where that's how we resolve things i don't think we do but i mean i don't want to take anybody's rights to have it but there's a better way like if I know a shortcut, but you want to take the long route, I'm not going to impose my shortcut on you. Active nonviolence is a much better way to resolve things, and I've, I've actually used it. Like, you, if you get in arguments on Facebook, like we all do, or you've seen an argument, you can always tell there's a point when it stops being about the issue you're discussing, and suddenly it's about the person's pride, you know? And that's when it starts to be getting into, like, an argument, a fight maybe. But if you're an onlooker, you can kind of just, at that point, if you interrupt, if you just kind of walk up like, hey, do you got a light? And 
a lot of times people don't want to get in a fight, but they also don't want, they feel their pride is hurt. They yeah. don't want to walk away. And if you give them that little window, well, it works. Yeah, no, Jackie, that's a really, that's a really great bit of advice. And it's a really great analysis, I think, of, of some of the problems that we have with guns and gun ownership that, that people uh, in, who experience conflict often uh, take it in a very personal way and, and see it as an insult to their to their pride or their humanity. And that often leads to the kind of violent response that, uh, that you're talking about. Um, I really appreciate the call and, and the comments. And it's interesting that, as you say, you're pro-gun. But you are also strongly uh, in favor of, of peaceful conflict uh, resolution. It's something that I think uh, we don't often talk about that sort of juxtaposition. Uh, Champ Barton, before I let you go, um, cast this forward a bit. Is this an issue that's going to, to resonate into the pandemic as we even get back into to reopening states? Or was this something that, that just kind of created a, a conflict between these governors and these store owners for that uh, that little window of time. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's hard to tell because I don't know if these orders are going to persist in the same fashion uh, that they have persisted for so long. And as, as states reopen, and so many of them are, um, I'm sure that will include gun stores. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's too hard to tell whether or not this will continue to be a problem. Um, and also whether or not local authorities in, in states like Michigan will sort of enforce um, the, the orders. That's been, you know, another another component of the story was that there, it just didn't seem like there was a lot of sort of stringent enforcement of the orders uh, across the country um, in the five states that we were looking at. Um, and, you know, even in Michigan, the attorney general's office uh, said that it was up to local authorities to, you know, handle enforcement um, some local authorities that I spoke with sort of were a little bit confused about that and, and said that the attorney general had to issue citations for, for stores. And I think that, um, you know, that too can be an issue that um, uh, persists, which is just that if there isn't clear guidance handed down from, from attorney general's offices, or from governor's offices um, about how to handle this particular issue, which is so hot button and, and, um, seems to be persisting, um, then the stores might stay open and there might not be sort of this, you know, firework level conflict that some might expect. Um, and then if the, if the states reopen, then the stores will reopen. Okay. Champ Barton, reporter with The Trace. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks for being with I, us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Up next, we're going to continue to talk about guns and how they're being used in the midst of a global pandemic here in Michigan and beyond. We're going to talk about these armed protests that we have seen in Lansing. So stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Anthony in Lincoln Park, Bruce in Beverly Hills. We'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We want to continue our discussion of firearms and their role in this pandemic with a look at the presence of armed protesters in Lansing in recent weeks 
and how this ideology fits into the larger history of the Michigan Militia and the National Rifle Association. Joining me now are two people who have been following the story and can talk about what it means. We are joined now by Frank Smythe, who is an investigative journalist who specializes in armed conflicts, organized crime, and human rights overseas and on the gun movement and its influence here at home. Frank Smythe, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, and Frank is joining us via Skype. Uh, also with us is Russ McNamara. He's a reporter and host of WDET's All Things Considered. Russ, welcome to the program. Good morning, Kayla. Yeah. All right. So first, I'm going to start with you, Russ. Uh, you've been following that story in Lansing and visiting gun shops around Metro Detroit. Uh, tell us what you're seeing on the ground. Well, most of these groups are harmless. Uh, remaining on the fringes of society, you know, you might work with some of these people and you can talk with these people and maybe get into a very good discussion and conversation with them. You can tell by their gear. They've got the high-powered rifles, but piecemeal tactical gear. These guys are not professionals. These are, you know, fairly amateurs. And for the longest time, they kind of stayed out of the way. Uh, you look at the first major rise in militias uh, that came after Waco and Ruby Ridge, you know, high-profile standoffs that really fueled anti-government sentiment. Then the Oklahoma City bombing uh, with deep Michigan ties uh, actually led to a decline because the FBI and ATF was watching closely. A lot of these groups are pretty well self-policed, and people that go overboard with certain amounts of rhetoric and threats. We had an incident, you know, about five years ago where a guy tried to arrest Debbie Stabenow for treason, and his own militia group was like, hey, we don't, we don't even like this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's essentially how it works out. But now, since the election of President Trump, uh, the groups are on the rise. They feel emboldened, and they're like, yeah, the conspiracy fringe is now getting more of a voice, and that's leading to more people kind of getting caught up into everything overall. Mm. Uh, Frank, you've been deeply embedded in uh, various armed conflicts throughout the world. Tell us how the Michigan militia presence in Lansing strikes you in this moment. I, I, and I will start by saying that I don't quite understand what, guns have to do with stay-at-home orders or with a public health crisis. I, I do get that people feel as though their rights are being infringed, but the response to that being not just a gun, but uh, an automatic gun, I mean, a, a very, very uh, militaristic-style gun strikes me as, as odd. Does it strike you the same way? Yeah, I think it's very odd. I think it's exceptional in the world. There's no other advanced nation on earth where you would see somebody heavily armed going into a, a subway shop in order to buy a sandwich. Um, it wouldn't be legal to carry those weapons, including even there was one picture of a gentleman with a rocket launcher. Uh, whether that was inert or, or active is unclear, but still it's, it's an ominous sign. And what it is, as your other guest, as Russ mentioned, the militia movement of the 90s tapered off after the Oklahoma City bombing mm -hmm. when people realized, including groups like the NRA, that these groups were too radical, that there were white, white power groups among them and groups uh, and other paramilitary groups with white power uh, ties or not that were intent on committing violence and the movement died down. Now we're seeing this movement come back and I think this is an ominous sign because it erodes the rule of law. It says that armed intimidation is permissible 
and that citizens have the right to interpret the Constitution, or more specifically the Bill of Rights, as they deem fit. They don't need courts to interpret it for them. They don't have to wait for legislators to pass laws. There is, there, there's a group called Three Percenters, which is one of the main umbrella groups of, of, uh, of armed paramilitaries that are active today. And they've put out videos where an officer is trying to read a local statute about what, what's legal and not legal in terms of an armed protest in their particular state. And the protester said, oh, I don't need that. I've had the Second Amendment. I have the Constitution here in my pocket. So I, I can interpret the law for myself. And I think this is a dangerous trend, especially when you see other incidents like the shooting of Ahmad Aburi in Georgia, where you see uh, white armed men in particular taking matters into their own hands. I think this is a movement that's been galvanized. I think it's increasing. And if you see those flags, the yellow flag with the coiled timber stake and the letters don't tread, don't tread on, on me, me yeah. that's a flag dating back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, and a man, uh, a, a commander named Gadsden, and that flag has become the symbol of the of the modern day armed paramilitary movement, which is trying to not call itself a militia, even though they very much seem like militias. Which is not waving necessarily three percenter flags, and not even and not many white power uh, flags, though you see some of them. That that yellow banner has become their symbol. And it's a little unclear what it means, but it, it, it appeared at every one of those demonstrations yeah. in Lansing yeah. and in many other states around the country. And this is a movement that is emboldened, as, you're, as Russ said, and it's really growing stronger. And some kind of confrontation seems inevitable. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask you, Frank, about the connection that you're referring to there uh, between uh, these these sort of – armed movements and the movements that are coalesced around the idea of arms and showing off arms and, and racist groups. Uh, there are a lot of assumptions I think that get made about that connection, but, but there's also a lot of reality in the, in the connection there. And I, I just want to be clear about uh, what you think that connection is. Are these groups that are motivated either primarily or even secondarily by racism. Most of the groups that are out there are not necessarily motivated by racism, and some of the three percenter groups have an explicit policy not to tolerate hate speech and to be inclusive and to include people of color. And many of the adherents in these groups who tend to train uh, every other weekend in many cases with live weapons, live semi-automatic rifles and other weapons, include many veterans of the recent Iraq and Afghanistan wars which include many people of color. So there is an element of, of inclusiveness in the policies of the groups, but then when you see the people protesting, they're overwhelmingly white males. There are very few people of color. And there are white power elements both within those groups and are also out there demonstrating. And when you follow these groups and look at the, what the literature and the videos that they're putting out, they don't, they don't besides having a policy some of the three percenter groups, again, hate speech, they are not denouncing white power groups. They're not standing up and saying, no, we don't want you uh, to be part of our movement. They're saying, if you're out there and you're demonstrating against the same thing that I am and you're armed and I'm armed, then that's fine. I'm not going to worry about whether or not you also are, are a member of a white power group. And I think this is a, 
this is a, a, a boondoggle for white power groups because it allows them to become part of a movement that's growing very popular among the edges of the right wing mm. and really becoming more mainstream. We don't see elected Republican officials denouncing these groups either, even though their intimidation is becoming more overt. And their disrespect for the rule of law is something that I think is uh, we need to keep an eye on. And white power groups are certainly part of this mix and I think we may see more of them as this escalates mm. and continues. Uh, Russ, you recently talked with Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who expressed really deep concerns about the presence of these armed protesters in Lansing. Let's first hear about uh, a little bit about what she said when you spoke with her recently. I'd be lying if I said I was felt completely safe. And I know that that is the goal, right? When somebody comes dressed in full tactical gear, carrying rifles, you know, I, I don't see what the goal is besides intimidation. Yeah, that idea of this this action as intended to intimidate members of the legislature to do what they want them to do. Russ, talk a little more about uh, what she and others in the state legislature are thinking and doing as all of this unfolds around them. Well, it's got to be kind of strange to be in the Senate and then to look up into the gallery above you and see men with rifles strapped to their backs. It's, you know, a little bit disconcerting. That's not something that you would see in practically every any other legislature, not only in the United States, but across the world. So she's concerned, especially when, you know, if guns are legal, then bringing a gun to a protest isn't really that necessary. So... I can understand what she means by intimidation. Uh, just look what the Republican leaders did uh, this past week uh, on Thursday. There was a big protest planned, and they decided to just take the day off. They canceled the session altogether. That was kind of surprising, but that's an also admission by you know Republican majority Senate leader uh, Mike Shirky saying, okay, this has maybe gotten out of hand. He denounced what the some of the online vitriol and violent rhetoric from some people after that Metro Times report, but still, you know, just canceling session and then backing away to try to diffuse the tension doesn't really diffuse anything when you're still not considering allowing uh, or banning guns altogether in the state legislature. Mm. Uh, last week, Michigan Representative Sarah Anthony was escorted into the Capitol building by three armed African-American men, which made a really striking statement about the ways armed civilians are viewed a little differently, maybe if uh, they're white or if they're people of color. Um, Russ, talk about what uh, Sarah Anthony did and what the reaction was to other people in Lansing to seeing armed African-Americans. Uh, escorting well, someone into the building. I mean, of course, something like this goes all the way back to uh, the Black Panthers in California, where, mm -hmm. you know, then-Governor Ronald Reagan couldn't get gun legislation passed quick enough in California once you had, you know, armed members of the Black Panthers standing on the steps and protesting that way. And that's always kind of been the case. When there was, you know, some issues going on with the prep public schools about 20 years ago, uh, then-Governor John Engler decided then that would be a good good idea to put you know, metal detectors in temporarily at the Capitol when people from Detroit were coming up. So 
So there's always been a double standard when it comes to, you know, African-Americans walking around with guns. And it can, like with some of these uh, weekend militias, uh, walking around with guns. And that's mm. kind of always been the case. And I don't know about you, Stephen, but I don't see that changing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us uh, what you think of these armed protests that we're seeing in Lansing, what they mean to you. Are they simple expressions of people's constitutional rights, or do you think that they reach the level of potential intimidation, attempted intimidation of members of the state house or senate or uh, intimidation of the governor uh, as always again 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones you can also go to facebook order twitter and put comments there we'll work you into the conversation let's go to bruce in beverly hills bruce welcome to the show hey steven uh, thanks for taking my call uh, sure. uh, great uh, subject uh, frank and uh, everybody just really hitting it on the head I, uh, I'm a business owner in Beverly Hills, and I, I do own a firearm, and my confusion is actually already been addressed. I was looking at why there is a, a, a gun put out to fight a virus uh, in, this, in this nature, and if it was the shoes on the other foot where there were a bunch of uh, uh, African-American men uh, standing there with long rifles and, and proclaiming it would be called a gang instead of a militia. Mm. Militia seems to be a good word now. Mm. As, as an American patriot. And also, before I go, I wanted to uh, thank you for being human. I, my deepest condolences to your friend who called in all the time. I heard your uh, broadcast. And, um, well, I love you, Stephen. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that, Bruce. And I really appreciate the, the acknowledgement of, of Tom Wilson, our longtime listener and most frequent caller who, who, who did die of, uh, of COVID last month. Uh, we, we continue to get really great uh, sentiments expressed by people uh, who will miss Tom as much uh, as we will. Uh, and, and thanks again for the call. Uh, Frank Smythe, uh, address this question of why people feel the need to get a gun to buy a gun, to brandish a gun, because of something like a pandemic. Again, this there, there's this disconnect, I think, about what people are feeling and why this is the reaction that they have to those feelings. Well, I think the pandemic is very validating for gun activists throughout the country, and it's certainly validating and uh, a boondoggle for the National Rifle Association that has long promoted an ideology that you need guns, A, for your own personal safety against any kind of individual crimes, B, you need guns in the case of some sort of natural disaster or an event like the hurricane when there may be lawlessness and anarchy and the government may not be there to protect yourself, and you need weapons according to the same ideology, in order to be able to defend yourself collectively against a potentially repressive government. Now, one can argue about the merits of these claims, which I find to be largely ahistorical and based more on myths than facts. But COVID-19 is a perfect storm to galvanize this movement to say, see, we don't know what's happening. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't necessarily believe everything we're hearing, but as long as that I have an AR-15 or another semi-automatic rifle and enough ammunition, I feel safe. And my, and my fellow armed activists also feel safe. And I think that's extremely dangerous. And the 
health measures of COVID-19, which most people would agree seem to be reasonable, seem to be science-based, there's no politics to it, it's a necessary condition, are become a, gr a perfect flashpoint for these same gun activists to see, no, we're gonna stand up for our freedom. I'm not going to wear a mask because it's a violation of my freedom. I'm going to go into a store and demand to be served because it's because I have it's it's part of my rights as an American, and that's an incredibly dangerous thing uh, in terms of individualism and uh, taken taken to an extraordinary level, and it's breaking down the social contract that keeps society together. It's not normal to have weapons in a political legislative uh, uh, assembly or mm. at, in the foyer of the building, and when you start having that, it means that you're no longer you're no longer seeing the political process itself as being legitimate. And when this happens in less developed nations, experts are usually predicting armed conflicts, which sure. I've seen sure. in a number of places. Here, because it's the United States, we've kind of normalized this, but I don't think there's anything normal about it, Steve. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation about these armed protests in Lansing, about the flurry of gun sales that have been inspired by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we wanna continue, of course, to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll get to Anthony and Lincoln Park and Jackie and Hazel Park. Uh, if you wanna join them again, 313-577-1019 is the number, or you go to Facebook or to Twitter and comment and we'll include your comments in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Frank Smythe, an investigative journalist who specialized specializes in armed conflicts, organized crime, and human rights overseas. He's also the author of a book titled The NRA, The Unauthorized History. Also with us is Russ McNamara, reporter and host of WDET's All Things Considered. We're talking with both of them about the armed protests that have been happening in Lansing about the stay-at-home orders uh, that Governor Gretchen Whitmer issued to take care of people during the COVID-19 pandemic. Lots of people have felt as though those orders are infringements on their rights, and some of them have been showing up in Lansing with guns to make that point. Is that the right way to be doing that? Is that the thing that uh, is, is, uh, is the way that we ought to be expressing those kinds of opinions here in the state of Michigan. Uh, we want to know from you whether you own a gun, maybe are a member of the NRA, and what you think about these armed protests that we've seen both on the Capitol grounds and inside the Capitol itself. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Uh, That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you in. Let's go to Anthony in Lincoln Park. Anthony. Welcome to the hey, show. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Um, 
Doing good. Um, I think, you know, it, it'd be one thing if the protesters were carrying a little pistol on their hip. But, man, no, they had the big shooters, man. Like, those were guns. Mm-hmm. So that makes a point, a statement. And then, you know, I also just, I was thinking about the protesters and, like, kind of playing out what they're trying to do. It's like, well, okay, the one day they were trying to be in the gallery and then the lady got kicked out and, oh, she's on Facebook Live. It's like, well, they said they were using that space for the legislators and there was a separate room with a live stream, like, in the Capitol. So, you know, and then the second day when they were crowding the rotunda area, it's like, well, what are you trying to get in there to do anyway? Just watch. There's already a live stream on it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of weird to me. Yeah. No, but, Anthony, it's, it is a very strange thing to watch and and as Frank Smythe pointed out it's the kind of thing that you only really see uh, in in this country uh, be be permitted uh, thanks very much for the call and the perspective let's go to Carrie in Waterford Carrie welcome to the show thank you Stephen um, so my uh, concern or my frustration um, I am not an NRA member um, but I, my frustration is that it took guns coming to our state capitol for legislatures to finally begin to have a conversation about um, guns and the rules uh, around guns, Um, yet we have, you know, gun violence in schools on a regular basis nationwide, and nobody's concerned when it's not their life at stake right there until now finally they feel the intimidation. And if they could just put themselves in the shoes of kids who feel intimidated, I think that would make um, a totally hmm. different conversation around guns. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Carrie. I mean, uh, people were really exercised about this, and it did inspire some debate in in the Capitol about how to handle firearms in, in, in that building. Uh, Russ McNamara, talk about what what that debate looked like uh, as we saw legislators, I think, uh, respond to, to their own feelings of intimidation uh, based on these these guns that were brought to, to Lansing. Yeah, uh, well, State Senator Mallory tomorrow, uh, talking with her directly, she was clearly uncomfortable. And, you know, there, were, uh, there was a resolution introduced in the Senate that would ban firearms from the Capitol building. And that's not expected to get any kind of traction whatsoever, because as long as the Republicans in the leadership are in charge or in the legislature are in charge, they're not going to do anything that would prohibit somebody from taking a gun anywhere. Mm. Uh, They've kind of made that clear. So in the current political climate with Republicans taking the governor to court and where we're at right now, I, I don't see the rules really changing via the legislature at all, but clearly people are uncomfortable. And this is just the latest moment where, you know, this issue has bubbled up. And with the polarization of, you know, the political parties right now, it it seems like the rhetoric has been, you know, building to a point where something might bubble over. And I mm-hmm. think, I think leaders on both sides are really starting to see that, and that's why, you know, Mike Shirky and Lee Chatfield shut down the legislature on Thursday. They're like, okay, maybe we need to, you know, take a step back. We won't go as far as banning guns at this moment, but 
you know, we will try to diffuse the situation altogether. Mike Shirky calling, uh, you know, relying on the Michigan State Capitol Commission to ban guns from the legislature cowardly. Mm. So he's saying that he doesn't want the Michigan State Capitol Commission to ban guns. He said it should be done to the legislature, even though there's it's unlikely that he himself would make a move to ban firearms. Yeah. Uh, uh, Frank Smythe, this, this political dimension of this where you have uh, Republican legislators and, and leaders really doing uh, what the NRA would, would have them do and not responding to sentiments like Kerry's, which is about the, the, the death that's caused by the prevalence of weapons in, in our society. It's a really, it's a really complicated issue to, un, to unpack, but I think we're seeing here in Michigan exactly what, what kind of influence the NRA has over, over Republicans. Yeah, and there's no, there's unfortunately no voice within the Republican Party acting as a check telling people, look, we we're, we agree with many of your views, but you do not need to carry se- military lineage, semi-automatic rifles into the foyer of a political assembly. You do not have to intimidate people. We're here to represent you. This is part of the political process, and everybody needs to respect that. Nobody is saying that. At the same time, we've seen a record number of attacks by white power groups, according to the Anti-Defamation League, mainly by what seem to be lone wolves, but lone wolves like in El Paso and like in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. But at the same time, they're coming out of white power, paramilitary communities that are not being investigated. So as this, this continues, what I'm concerned about is we're moving toward elections November 3rd. What if President Trump were to lose the election or would reportedly lose the election and then claim that there's uh, evidence of electoral fraud, whether there is or not. Mm. These same groups that are coming out against COVID-19 would then be mobilized again. And so far, nowhere in the country, it seems, has anyone drawn a line and say, look, you have a right to carry a weapon, but there are certain circumstances that even Scalia and his Heller uh, versus DC uh, majority opinion that expanded gun rights in the nation. Mm-hmm. Even Scalia noted that there are places where weapons can be banned, churches, schools, etc. We're mm-hmm. seeing no on. Well, I think we might have lost Frank Smythe there. Frank, I really appreciate you being here on the show. Great information that you're sharing about guns and the NRA and our history. Russ McNamara, reporter and host of WDET's All Things Considered. Oh, great to have you here as well. Thank you. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.